Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am really excited to present to you part two of the In the Company of Friends talk with Laura Helm. We're going to talk about technology as well as the environment. And you're going to hear some compelling reasons to clean out your email box we're also going to be talking about teasing out those clues of nature, becoming more aware of what nature is telling us so that we can better understand and appreciate the environment around us to become better stewards of the planet and help creatures like the monarch butterfly, which this week just was red listed and put on the endangered species list. So it is only two steps away from extinction. These butterflies have a migratory path from Mexico to Canada. Every year they go back and forth. It's about 2,500 miles along the western side of the United States. And Mexico is seeing a 70% decline in the population numbers from like the 1980s, 1990s, while California is seeing a 95% decline. So the issue is that even if you're seeing them around and you have milkweed in your yard, actually it's a two-pronged issue. One of them is a lot of these butterflies habitat along that 2,500 mile migratory path is being lost. It's being lost either to clear cutting pesticides, herbicides, um, the drought is causing problems with the growth of plants that are part of their habitat, as well as water sources. So there's a lot of things that are going on that are putting this butterfly in peril. But the other issue is the milkweeds that a lot of us are planting. So I'm going to say probably for about the last 20 years, I've had volunteer milkweed in my yard and it's beautiful. The problem is that it's been recently reclassified as a B-rated nauseous weed. So this is the tropical milkweed. It's red and yellow and a lot of landscapers use it because it's one, beautiful, and two, it's a perennial. So it's around all year. That is a problem in two ways to the monarch butterflies. One is, is that it encourages the butterflies to stick around rather than migrating like they're supposed to. So some counties like Ventura County are encouraging gardeners to remove the tropical milkweed and they're having giveaways of native milkweeds, 
which would be the narrow leaf milkweed. Its Latin name is Asclepius fascicularis, which totally sounds like a Harry Potter spell. I will put a link in the show notes for you. If you don't have milkweed in your yard, you can grow it from seed. Just spread a bunch of it around because once those monarchs lay their eggs and the caterpillars are hatched, they pretty quickly will decimate that plant. I mean, they are very, very hungry little caterpillars, but you're going to have a bunch of monarch butterflies that hatched in your yard because you fed them the right food. And hopefully the numbers will grow. Um, It's really heartbreaking to me. It's devastating that 95% of the monarch population has declined in California and they're going towards extinction. But these are some of the clues that you see from nature. Nature depends on us so much. I had the opportunity today, so when you hear this, it'll be a couple of days ago that I went to the Los Angeles Arboretum to the Jurassic Summer Camp designed specifically for adults. We created terrariums instead of juice boxes. We got wine boxes. So we did a sip and educational tour (laughs) around the Arboretum. One of the things that definitely stood out with that and this issue that's going on with the monarch butterfly and with the food sources that we're putting in our yards is how much nature depends and is directed by what we do. So if we're not putting out the right food sources for the monarch butterflies, they're going to start going towards extinction. If we're removing a lot of their habitat in that 2,500 mile migratory path, they're going to start to go towards extinction. So logic only dictates that if we start bringing back the right type of plants, we're going to help increase their numbers. You hear that quote so much that we are so much more powerful than we think. And in this instance, that is true. So I just wanted to get that out there. Without further ado, please join Laura and me in this episode of In the Company of Friends. Okay, so I know that you ended up getting a degree in mathematics and computer science. And a lot of it had to do with growing up in this this little town and those were the expectations that was just normal. This was the course of your life. And did you choose that because of your dad's career? Because I know he had a really interesting career. He was in engineering and he worked on the Apollo program. But I think I inherited, uh, actually from both parents are kind of mathematical. I still enjoy computer science. I still enjoy math. You know, I still read books on both subjects and I still teach computer science. But yeah, absolutely. That was an influence. He was always trying to get us to become little engineers. (laughs) <laughs> but to be honest, one of the reasons I, I kind of wanted to be uh, go into physics, but I felt like that was something that you had to dedicate your life to. Like I couldn't pick one thing to dedicate my life yeah. to. Um, but, um, you know, the other thing was my parents got divorced. There were hard times. There were financial difficulties. And I'm like, you know what? I don't ever want to have to be poor again. <laughs> I was like pulling roots out of the backyard going, I, I shall never go hungry again. Um <laughs> That really impacts you. Absolutely. It was like, I need to be able to have a lucrative career and be able to take care of myself financially. So 
Absolutely. So, and I still love it. Right now I'm learning how to be a full stack developer. That means from the front end, like a user interface, like you might see on a web page, all the way through the internet to the server, database management system stuff. And I'm loving it. It's a puzzle, it's a game. It's, so I still love all of that stuff and still keep my feet. It's just a really hard industry to be in though, because it really is time consuming. Right. Uh, I keep the limit on it. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, you could get lost in those webs and puzzles and turns of code and seeing where one thing takes you or what you can create. It's fascinating to me. I know it's very time consuming. I mean, it's something that you build your knowledge one block at a time with. But the blocks keep changing as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I started off programming in Fortran. Of course, I worked in aerospace. So that's probably still used. Uh, and I keep thinking of going and getting a job working on the Voyager project because everything on that thing is still written in Fortran. Um, but nobody uses that anymore. And I probably learned, I don't know, a couple dozen languages since way back when. <laughs> so it's just something that you're, you're constantly retooling yourself. The fundamental concepts are the same. Like, and that's what I teach my kids. They need to be able to understand how a programming language works because Python's going to go away and there's going to be whatever the next thing is. That's the challenge of being in information technology is that the technology is constantly changing mm -hmm. and you got to know how it works. It's evolutionary. I mean, I think that it kind of resembles like when I'm having a discussion with people who are upset that people are not using particular words any longer. The language is being hijacked by new words and old words are becoming obsolete. But I think computer language, that's why it is called a language because it is kind of a living fabric and things are constantly, words or terminology is constantly replacing old terminology. And it's not necessarily better than something that's no longer preferred. It's just that it works better for the current application. And I think language is like that. It, it's just always going to evolve and change. So um, tell me about your dad working on the Apollo. Um, well, it's kind of interesting because he, he never even finished his engineering degree because the market was so hot. And, you know, my dad was super smart. And he ended up get this job at Hughes Aircraft, you know, so it was, hey, Bob, come work for us. And he ended up working for a subcontractor. He worked on radio switches. It was this electronic switch that was used in communicating between the LEM and the orbiter. So, you know, when they did the moon landings, the lander was down on the surface and then there was the command module orbiting the moon. It was basically working on the radio communications between those two units. So that's what he did. Unfortunately, because he didn't finish his degree and they terminated the Apollo program, many, many, many engineers were, you know, out of work. So it was really hard for him to try and find the same caliber of job that he had through his own talent, as opposed to not having that piece of paper came back to haunt him. That is such a shame that a degree would supersede years of knowledge and experience. It just blows me away every time I hear one of these stories. Well, you know, and there were a lot of people that were you know, did have their degrees, but were more junior. So, I mean, there was a lot of engineers that were out of work. So, but it was particularly difficult for him to get back into the business because of that. And that's what makes me so mad. Uh, I think 
I love data. I love data. My senior paper was on eliminating redundancy in data. I know that sounds really like nerdy, but I think it's important. Redundancy, I'm sure you put this somewhere in your paper, but I'm just thinking about time saving, aggravation, repetitiveness. And it's every time that something's duplicated, it's not duplicated exactly. There's not an exact duplication. So there's a lot of errors that occur because of redundancy too. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you get an email or you get a piece of mail that's sent to the old owner of your property or whatever, that's somewhere along the line, somebody was not clean something up. So it's a huge problem. Absolutely. What was your, what were some of your arguments against redundancy? Uh, Well, actually it was more towards, it focused mostly around databases where when you're storing information, how do you store it so that you never have redundant data? Uh, But also there's performance issues when you do that. So you have too many checking every time you try and save a customer record or whatever, you know, there's give and take to, oh, let's just create another record. You know, Joe Smith, one, two, three, Main Street, Joe Smith, one, two, three, Patton Ave or, you know, whatever. So it was more around the technique, the computer science based techniques for managing redundancy in data. So it was less about conceptual redundancy as opposed to how to work with it and eliminate it. I'm more of an applied person. Mm-hmm. If, you ever, if you ever watch The Big Bang Theory, you have Sheldon, who's a theoretical physicist, and then you have Leonard, who's the applied physicist. I'm more of the applied person. I like to take things and prove them. So it was more along those those lines mm-hmm. that we were looking at redundancy. I have a great example of that, I think. Um, I'm gearing up to have uh, laparoscopic surgery on my knee mm-hmm. because I tore my meniscus, and it's not healing you know, they usually don't, but I do have a torn meniscus in my other knee and it's fine. This one just got better to a certain point and then didn't continue to get better. So I go into the doctor's office and I have to see one of the nurses and she asks me a whole list of questions. You know, is there heart disease in your family? Are you allergic to any medications, etc.? And so then I'm like, okay, I answer all of these questions and I'm thinking this is like the fourth time over the past several months that I'm being asked these same questions, like, shouldn't they just be in my chart? And the doctor was waiting in another area of this facility for me to finish this up so that he could book surgery. Well, before that could happen, a second guy walks in and he's like, I'm going to just ask you a couple of questions and just want to make sure that everything is set up. And he proceeds to ask me the same exact questions that the nurse had just asked me. And I said something about it. And he said, yeah, but this is a different section of the computer. They don't talk to each other. Right in the middle of me having to repeat all of this stuff, all of this medical stuff again. And the doctor walks in and he goes, I'm really sorry, but I have to leave. You're going to have to come back next week. And I'm like, what? And it was all because of redundancy and it wasn't super close. So I had to drive back and it was a five minute visit with the doctor for him to go, well, looks like they asked you all the questions. When do you want the surgery? Good Lord. Well, you got to be careful. You got to be careful when you bring these topics up with me because people in my former industry, I, you know, now I'm teaching programming and stuff, but I'm not really, uh, I'm not an IT person anymore, but they're expensive. Good people that can code and design and do business analysis are very expensive, but you know what? They save you a X ton of pain and suffering later on and costs and whatever, but it's, it's overhead. 
companies, businesses, they don't want to invest in very expensive people. In fact, I just left an investment company. They had purchased a company that I had already been doing business with and they wouldn't clean anything up. They had, again, this redundancy problem because they had multiple systems. They hadn't integrated everything together. It had already been like four years since they bought my company. And I'm like, forget it. I can't stand it anymore. And I, so I move my money somewhere else. <laughs> oh my God. So, and I work for LAUSD. Teachers would complain about some of the technology that they had access to. And it's just like, well, you guys don't respect your IT. You don't, and you don't pay them enough. So you get what you pay for. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I think that there's just this attitude of, you know, like it's too much trouble. I don't want to wait, you know, updates. I, I'm going to admit I use GIMP. Oh, uh, yep. I like GIMP. Yep. I love it. I love it. And for the last month, it's been telling me that there's an update and I haven't done it because I get on there and it's like, nope, I don't have time to do that right now. I just have to color edit or add graphics or whatever to this photo. And I don't just don't have the time. I'll do it next time. And I still haven't, I still haven't downloaded the upgrade, but I think that there's that. And there's also this idea that it's a computer, you know, a lot of people who have been born into the computer generation, into the social media, but the, you know, all of this technology was around prior to them being here. And so it's just a part of life. It's just a fact of life. And, you know, if one program doesn't work, then you go and find a program that does work. And it's very disposable, expendable, okay. and we'll just find something else. Uh, planned obsolescence. Yes. <laughs> I agree. That's, that's definitely true. And I've always worked in organizations where I cannot get the younger people communicating well with the older people because these guys only do email. These guys <laughs> wouldn't know where to find their email app. So but I find that as someone who also I was certified as a software quality assurance engineer, and I think the disposability is part of that. We're not going to invest in doing a robust system testing because we're going to make our money off of this and then there's going to be something else down the road, you know, then so we're just going to abandon everything. So we just don't build things. Um, things are not built to last sometimes because there's already the knowledge that technology is advancing at such a fast pace that this product, this item, might it's going to end up being obsolete really quickly. You know, I remember the kids asking me one time, like, mom, what's a Walkman? And I'm like, I mean, that was around for a very short time. I had one. I remember running and, you know, I, it would skip. And then we all had those little <laughs> teeny tiny iPods and they were great because they didn't weigh anything and they, mm -hmm. they were just a chip. I've got a drawer full of them now because nobody uses them. It's obsolete technology. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it seems to move more quickly. It's interesting because I'm an instructor. A lot of my coworkers are, they're like in the 20, mid 20s, 20 something range. And I knew they were fresh out of school with their computer science degree. And mine, like I said, learning Fortran. <laughs> And and actually, my very first job was to do my own punch cards, you know, I never actually coded with punch cards, but that was part of our history lesson. But anyway, um, so I was always very cognizant of the fact that these guys were the latest and greatest in terms of education and everything. But then I see our students come in, these 10 year olds that are saying, oh, wait, you don't know about such and such, you know, so it seems like it's accelerating. So it's, it's 30 years between me and my coworkers, which I feel like it was obviously a generation. And, but even just kids that are 
10, eight years younger are already telling them they're a bunch of old fogies. So I feel better. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I think it's accelerating so quickly because everybody is racing to be at the top. It's like the nonstop race. You know, you watch um, the Olympic runners and they're all just jockeying for first position, but their race ends, you know, and they get to lay down and taking deep breaths and all of that kind of stuff, trying to return to normal. But these races to get to the front of technology are never ending. You get to the front and somebody's already racing past you while you're going, yes, I made it. Somebody's racing past you and going, nope, here's the next thing and I'm going to do it. You've got, you know, the metaverse, you've got Web3, you know, and I mean, there's so many different things. You got the NFTs, the- Oh, oh, the um, cryptocurrencies. The (laughs) cryptocurrencies. I'm like, I, you wouldn't catch me getting involved with that. I know it's like, it's a speculation sort of situation, but I'm, I've, I've seen these things come and go. I'm like, yeah, you guys can keep your cryptocurrency. If I have to use it eventually, I will. But uh, no, I'm not going to wild, wild west this one. <laughs> and people have lost their shirts. So. Oh, they have. I know. It's not FDIC insured at all. So you've got that. But I think, you know, you mentioned 10-year-olds and they're seeing like bleaker his NFT went for, I want to say 30 million because 300 sounds completely insane, but I think it was something insane like that. Um, he puts it up and just starts watching the numbers go up and up and up and up. And it's sold and I'll put the, the right amount in the show notes, but kids are seeing that, you know, they're seeing these really cool NFTs. And actually, then you start reading about stuff like crypto whales, they call them crypto whales. And it's like, you know, in your imagination, you're just seeing this big whale like floating around, but it's that much crypto that's being moved around. And you're like, who's moving it? What? And, but it's just, it's just a crazy world. And the kids are seeing all of this and they're getting really excited about being the ones that put the next NFT out there. And it's like, how do I do that so that I can be the next big person there and kids are just so they're like little sponges you know they absorb everything and they have not had their imagination capped yet right so they still live in a fantasy world and so they create some really amazing things like you know the sky's the limit with them absolutely well as long as they don't lose their shirts you know actually my company um we had an artist from taiwan so when kids attend class, they get coins that they can, they're just points. It's a point system, right? And you can cash in your points. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we offer them is these little NFTs of these. They're kind of like, um, you know, your trading cards, your Pokemon sort of, but they're all our all original artwork um, that were created for our company. So part of just coming to class is you, once you get enough points, you can go and buy these little NFTs. And we're actually trying to add a blockchain class to our curriculum. Wow. Kids can learn that as well. I, on the other hand, the environmental impact yeah. of the whole process horrifies me. I've been an environmentalist my whole life. Uh, as you know, I'm a docent at the Korea Marine Aquarium mm-hmm. and I regularly attend their lectures. I like follow Noah on Twitter. It's one of those things I try to educate myself on as much as I can, because it's something that I think is just critical to help communicate to people how big the risk is to the planet with what's going on. 
So I don't see the need for cryptocurrency and blockchain and all that sort of thing. I don't see the benefit to society. People say, oh, well, it's going to democratize. But it's not. The people that are building it, you know, these MIT grads, where the people that are getting involved, you know, they're not the poor guy on the street, you know, the people that are starting these businesses and, and making all the money off of it. So um, I just, I don't really see what the advantage to society of cryptocurrencies is. I, I not not seeing it compared to the downside. Right. And I know that they've tried to address it. So they're making the wax-based cryptocurrency right. right now. And I haven't looked into it enough to see how much of an advantage environmental wise the wax cryptocurrency is to the alternative? Well, you know, it's true. I mean, all of these systems just maintaining our data, you know, if this will make you clean out your, your inbox, you know, they're just going to go put another server out there to, to hold the emails you're never going to read. <laughs> yeah. Like just storing all this information and maintaining these servers and the electricity and everything it takes to do all that is, um, is, is a future environmental issue. It is something to be concerned about. I was just mentioning earlier today that it is a fact that within the next 20 to 25 years, South Pacific islands will be underwater and will not be able to sustain life on them. I mean, I'm sure that as it becomes a problem, they'll find ways to migrate away from those islands. But the environmental impact of what we're doing elsewhere in the world has repercussions across the globe. And it's a lot to think of. And I think it's really important. And it's really hard to, sometimes it feels so futile to even do anything because the problem is so huge, you know, um, is it better to use paper plates or to use up all of the water that it takes to wash dishes? You know, I mean, there's you, you could get to that okay. level of going, okay, well, which one is worse? Um, you know, well, but I know that those arguments come up. So it, it, it absolutely can be exhausting. I mean, I remember I would take my kid shopping with me and we're looking at apples and they're like, oh, we love Braeburn. Oh, look, and they're organic. Oh, we want organics. Good. It's organic from New Zealand. Okay, well, then you have the, the carbon footprint and footprint of the and after a while, I was just I just had to stop myself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, oh. I just was, you know, you could spiral with the better apple to buy, you know, I, you know, everybody could be doing a little bit of something, you know, if everybody did a little bit of something. Right. You know, if everybody just recycled. And it's hard to do that for a while there. I was like, okay, not going to use any plastic, you know, and then I'm pulling out containers to put my leftovers in and they're plastic. And there's just certain times when, especially during the COVID, oh, yeah. the height of the COVID epidemic, it was like, yeah, I want the fork and the spoon that are wrapped in plastic. <laughs> so you know, there's benefits. And you know, like one of the other things that I'm thinking of, which I'm like, I am never growing artichokes again, I forget this every single year, we have a prolific artichoke plant, it's beautiful, it's glorious. I love artichokes. But you know, mm -hmm. what else loves artichokes mm -hmm. is earwigs. And so they get in between those leaves, because it's nice and moist and dark environment for them. And they just wow. live there. 
they just live there and multiply. And so this year we had a particularly terrible problem with them. And I had forgotten because, you know, it's been a year since I picked artichokes. And I'm like, I totally would rather drive to the store and pay $1.50 for an artichoke the next time I want one than grow them again. Because I mean, there's probably a way to prevent them from getting on there. You realize what a struggle it is to be a farmer when you try to grow stuff. It's like stuff you never would have thought about. No, it's me and the the brassica, the uh, cabbages, your cauliflowers, because the omnivorous loopers or the cabbage whites, you know, these green caterpillars. And you know me, I love bugs as long as they keep their distance and they're not in my vegetables. So let's just say... Most of my food gardening has become more of a insect observatory than anything else. Even the green tomato worms, you know, you go, oh my God, how could anything eat so much? No wonder, you know, there's a story, the very hungry caterpillar, I'm sure started out as one of those little red horn tomato, green tomato worms. Yep. I will grow tribute plants for yeah. these little guys because they turn into hummingbird moths, which you know, mm-hmm. they're gorgeous and they're nighttime pollinators, but then I don't get any tomatoes. Exactly. But it's funny. So I have tons of milkweed. So I've always got the monarch caterpillars and stuff. And, oh, when they're just, I, sometimes you, when they just come out of the egg and then they mold and then they get to the point, you have a full bush and the next day it's gone. It's just it's like, you guys are gluttons. <laughs> you just better pupate right now because I'm not happy with you, your behavior, gentlemen. <laughs> I said one helping, not the whole plant. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they're, they're hungry little they're hungry little caterpillars, but yeah, yeah, once when they're getting ready to pupate, it's just like, geez, guys. <laughs> it's so fascinating. I mean, I love that you brought up bugs and it's funny because I did an episode with my friend Brooke, who is the director of education at the Los Angeles Arboretum, and she does a lot of kid programs, and one of them involves hissing cockroaches, Mm -hmm. Madagascar hissing cockroaches. And she got to finally be comfortable around them. Worms, she's not as charmed by, but they, they really bothered her for a long time. And so we got into this conversation of bugs and they are singularly the most interesting animals of the animal world. The things that they can do, their adaptations. I mean, just the fact that spiders can spin webs, you know, you take a look at like silver or golden orb spiders and Mm -hmm. they, you know, they spin these crazy webs and their webbing is stronger than steel in comparison to, to size and filament and, and that sort of thing. In fact, I believe that it's Turkey that they actually have places where it's just basically a golden orb spider factory and they collect the webs, which doesn't harm the spiders. And then they weave it like silk. They weave it into shawls, you know, diet, and it's beautiful. It's just really beautiful. But then you take a look at their webs, and they've got that almost like this stabilizer pattern across the center. And E.B. White came upon one of these 
Well, oh, yes, of course. And he's, you know, he said, oh, that looks like handwriting. And he created Charlotte's Web because of these spiders. But, you know, just the fact that you've got a spider that can spin web, you know, dragonflies that can fly backwards and they go back. They are one of the least changed creatures from prehistoric times. The only thing that's changed about them is their size. They become smaller, of course. I could go on with a list of what... <laughs> you know, all of these different bugs do because I'm so yeah, just as fascinated by them as you are. You know, there's speaking of caterpillars, all of the Saturnids, they have very voracious caterpillar lives and then they're born without a mouth. So yeah, they can't eat and they're enormous, like the blue morphos and the Luna moths with those really elegant long tails at the end of their wings. Mm-hmm. They can't eat. I think they live like maybe two weeks tops and then they just kind of fall out of the sky and die of starvation. Um, but, you know, they taste through their feet type of thing. I mean, it's just like, what? This is incredible. There's a few bugs that I don't like and mosquitoes are definitely at the top. Like, you know, why? Why is there a mosquito? What, like exactly what does this do to make the planet better? Um, well, if, you, if you're, if you're a, a plague sort of... Uh... It helps diseases get around, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or bacteria. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's a good factor for uh, stuff like that. But when I take the kids around at the aquarium, you know, and it's like, well, look at how these animals adapted to their environment and look what they can do. And actually like mussels, you know, you probably already know this mussels, you know, they look like they're stuck to a rock their entire life. Well, no, they actually can move. They have these threads that they can Think of a, a hot air balloon. If you could just keep moving the hot air balloon by pulling on the, the ropes that are hold it down. Mm-hmm. So the muscles can do that. They can actually move around. You probably have seen that thing at the aquarium where you have to actually took it out where it shows you how much pressure you have to apply to break yeah. the thread, right? But just again, just showing these guys this stuff. And it's just, it's just, they live on the same planet we do. But look at how they evolved to live and find shelter and feed themselves in a completely different way than we do. My other favorite thing is there's like at least 30 different species that have developed separate from each other, the ability to produce light, bioluminescence, mm-hmm. right? It's like light is so important that these creatures, you know, separate from each other, develop their own way to produce it. Yeah, it's crazy, this little planet of ours. That's why I get so defensive of it. Yeah, it is fascinating. You know, you take a look at how nudibranchs steal from the sea anemones, the stingers, and kind of wear them as a cloak, you know, so that if a predator comes near them, those stingers sting the predator and, you know, wards them off. And just some of the eating, the way that some of these sea creatures will eat, like the the radulas, you know, where mm-hmm. they just grind things down and they can bore, I don't know which ones those are, that bore into rock. The, I think they're clams, aren't the, they? The, the pitic clam, yes. Yeah. We have, the, we have this little dance we make the kids do <laughs> when we're talking about <laughs> the pitic clams. Okay, you're going to dig yourself into a rock now. It's kind of like doing the twist. <laughs> Oh, how cute. Do it, do it. Those are the interactive dances to demonstrate different techniques. And usually the little mm-hmm. ones, it's fun. It engages them. You know, there are so many things that I love about that aquarium. It's got the biggest collection of Southern California sea life in it. Mm-hmm. It's an educational aquarium. Mm-hmm. My kids basically spent their entire lives there. I remember dropping 
Sophie off one time for C Club. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, they walked down to the tide pools. And I happened to be in the parking lot when she was walking back. There's all these little kids and they're all like, we got a crab, we got a crab. And I'm like, oh, you know, Sophie's holding it in her hand. And I go, what are you going to do with it? She's like, going to feed it to the octopus. (laughs) Which was, I kind of felt bad for the crab, but then it was like, you know, the octopus has to eat. But I love the fact that they take young, young children and immediately treat them like scientists. There's microscopes. There's so much immersive learning that it's just a gem. And, you know, I don't like separating people into kinetic learners and stuff like that. But that was the one thing that I wish my child had more of in her K-12 career was experiential science. Because reading it in a book is just not as exciting as reading a crab to an octopus. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, did you ever do an experiment that measures acceleration due to gravity? No. Like there's like, I could have come in and showed you a way to do that. And, you know, it it made physics real for me when I was able to do that. And again, I go back to my privilege going to Whalen High School and Whalen Middle School was, you know, we had that experiential science all the time. And it helped me take on more science and technology related subjects. You know, I can see kids just not feeling comfortable in that world because they just was kind of like book learning. And that's really unfortunate, I think. I think so too. I mean, I know that if you're in the middle of America and you don't have an aquarium near you, that's the way that you're going to learn about sea life uh, without leaving to visit the ocean and to visit those aquariums there. So there's clearly a need for the books and the videos, but having that hands-on experience, I, I remember I had the opportunity to milk a cow once and I haven't forgotten it. It's I couldn't believe how silky soft <laughs> the udders were. I it wasn't anything that I expected. Um those are fascinating experiences. Like, wow, okay, you connect so much when you have kinetic learning. And, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be that everybody goes to an aquarium or anything like that. I mean, kids can see how things work in the world, whether it's in a tide pool or in a prairie or, or, or like you said, a farm. We had Drummond Farm. I still remember going and we, and we learned how to card the wool. And, you know, I think kids should learn more about where their water comes from than calculus. And that's coming from someone with a degree in mathematics. Like give them statistics and obviously uh, algebra has a lot of logic and, and that sort of thing, um, trig as well. But if you cook, those are concepts that you use every day. One quarter cup, a half a teaspoon. <laughs> right, exactly. You know? I mean, I know it's like low level, but <laughs> they're concepts that you that you actually use. Calculus. I'm like, um, you, okay, it, I'm a little bit lost. If you need if you need calculus, you'll learn calculus. If you want to go be a physicist, learn calculus. Nobody needs to know calculus. <laughs> When I became a professional, we didn't write our own Taylor series or, or any of that stuff. You bought MathCAD. Somebody already wrote that. The math hasn't changed in many, many, many years. Um, you obviously have to understand, and this goes to like these meta concepts, like the programming languages. When do I need to use a Taylor series? And then you plug it into the computer. You know, <laughs> you don't necessarily know how to do it. You just have to know when to use it. I mean, it's kind of like a calculator, right? We learn how to add, subtract, divide, multiply. I mean, it's all adding and subtracting at its core. But when you're at the market and you're trying to figure out $1.32 per ounce versus this one, that's 
the other one will be something like 232 for three ounces. (laughs) And you're not going to figure out that math in your head. You're going to pull out your calculator. Oh, you you can see me in the the toilet paper aisle (laughs) with my husband. And, and, and he'll be reading me numbers and I'll be on my phone going, okay, look, the larger package is not cheaper per unit, but understanding how to calculate a unit price is important. How you actually do the calculation is another topic. You can have a calculator to help you. do. So again, it's this meta concept that you need to instill in people so they know what tool to use or who to hire. <laughs> so, you know, really the onus is on parents to make sure that their kids do understand those concepts and do understand about nature, about where food comes from, where the water comes from, what the wildfires, you know, the other day I was outside watering, we're in this serious drought right now. Mm -hmm. And I have almost everything in pots in my yard. And I'm not wasting water on the ground, I've got this nozzle that's just easy turn on, water that plant, soak it down good, turn it off, go mm-hmm. to the next plant. But I was out there, you know, and I'm feeling the Santa Ana winds blowing towards me. I'm like, you know, the wind's not blowing in the right direction. And I think a lot of that knowledge about weather, that kind of gets a little bit lost on kids. I think I got it from growing up with a pilot, you know, my dad we owned a Cessna. And so I had to know my directions. You know, so many people are like, you tell them go north. And they're like, no, I need to know left and right, because they don't know where their directions are. Uh, They don't know what the wind blowing in the opposite direction usually means in the middle of summer. Probably Santa Ana and fire season is like, right, imminent. Um, and in the winter time, you probably have a storm coming through because the wind's blowing the wrong way. Uh, a friend of mine posted this word presentism in the definition, which is to evaluate the world and the way you're ex- experiencing it today. Like her emails, the technology was completely different back then, you know, but they think of it the way that they're experiencing emails today, you know, that you have all this technology and there's backups. Once they burned her blueberry, that was like, 30% of the emails because they threw it in the shredder. So that's why they went because you didn't have this, right? So um, I think when we are looking at big problems like climate change, people just look at the world of the way it is today and the way it works today. But if you were a gardener, or like you said, with the Santa Ana's, it's like, wow, this is kind of a weird time of year for the Santa Ana's to be kicking in or to watch when your plants blossom. I have a nectarine that was hybridized to grow in Southern California because it's not really the right temperate zone, hardiness zone to be doing stone fruit. Well, this one had been grown so that you could grow them in Southern California. Well, it's now in the 25 years since I planted it, it doesn't blossom the same time. It doesn't blossom as much because it's getting hit with heat earlier in the year than it did when it was designed. So I think if people did things like gardening or farming or where you're interacting with the planet around you in a way that you become attuned mm-hmm. to these natural ebbs and flows, and then you can go, oh, that's something's wrong, you know, or something's changed. Absolutely. Um, interacting doesn't even have to just be gardening. Like, I love snorkeling. And there will be like kelp 
growing all around you and just this proliferation of sea life, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be like sea bass and opalize and you'll see the snails and it's just beautiful, very calming. And of course, the temperature, you know, I wear a spring suit because it's it gets pretty cold out there, but it's just nice. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll see a sea lion and then you'll go out maybe two or three weeks later and the kelp is decimated. The water feels warm. Everything feels off. And the tide is just rolling tons of kelp back up onto the beach because the water's too warm for it to survive. And everything's moving further into the ocean Mm -hmm. to survive as well. So those interactions tell you that something's going on. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, it could be growing up in New England when it, when the crocuses came up. I mean, that was a pretty obvious thing because that was like always the first blossom of spring. You know, it's like it, we're seeing crocus in February. Uh, that's not a good thing. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that people don't get, you know, I have kids that come down to the aquarium. They live in Westchester and they've never been to the beach. Because, you know, their family may not have the transportation available to them or mom and dad work six, seven days a week. And that's another thing that keeps kids and parents from being able to, you know, you might want to, as a parent, educate your child in these things. And so you're doing everything that you can to enroll them in summer camp, to enroll them over in programs at the aquarium, etc. But you've got to work. Like you've got to put food on the table. And so there's, you know, there. I, I think that there are a lot of by necessity, just because of the way that our lives are, especially here in Los Angeles, where it's so expensive just to mm-hmm. breathe. <laughs> and you know, that the pollution that's in the air, you know, like that's, that's something else that, you know, you've got to look at and that which affects all of these things that we just talked about. Um, But you do need to be aware of those things. So it's really awesome that these programs are available. And again, it's kind of up to us as parents to make our kids aware of these things. You know, I mean, just with Sophie and I, we went a few years ago to Pear Blossom, which is in Mm -hmm. Lancaster. It's like the high desert there. Uh, There's a place called the Devil's Chair. And I said, let's go for a hike. And Sophie said, okay. And then she, you know, regretted it later in the day. (laughs) She she loved the hike. Um, It was a little over almost 10 miles. It was a a little bit over nine miles one way to get to the devil's chair. And then coming back out of the devil's chair, which was spectacular once you got there. And that's where we had our lunch. It was uphill for quite a way and the sun was setting. There was ice on the trail. It was, I thought it was glorious. I'm like, you know what? I can go 30 miles. I don't care. But <laughs> I basically did 20 miles and she's like, I am never doing this again. But we have all of these great memories despite that statement because she brings it up all the time. Like, you know, oh, remember that? You know, like this was so cool. That was so cool. And then a fire went through there the following year. And all of those trails have been rearranged. It's amazing the changes that a fire causes to an area. I used to go up to Schweitzer Canyon and hike through there. And there was this terrible raging fire that went through there during one of the droughts, you know, one of our fire seasons, it's it's no longer just a wildfire, like it's guaranteed that this is going to happen. 
because of climate change and boulders fall, trees die. You know, there was this whole entire glade, a little forest area. I don't know what else to call it. I'm sure it's got a, a better name than that. And there were these ancient trees, tall, tall trees that were dead because of this fire. And they were kind of leaning on each other and almost looked like these giant trees that were so tall that it was going to be quite a while before they hit the ground. It was, you know, dangerous. You couldn't go in there. But it was almost like they were kind of cradling their fallen. And, you know, I know that sounds really dramatic, but you see these changes and you go, oh my God, this part of the river is now impassable. I remember taking off my shoes and walking through here because there was this funny little tiny frog inside of a little hole in a rock and it sounded like a duck call. And I kept trying to find it and it was just really hilarious. And when I finally found it, it was like the size of a popcorn kernel or something like that. I had this very robust voice, but it's, it's really sad to see that. And, you know, places that were shaded are no longer shaded. And there was daughter I'd never seen daughter before, D-O-D-D-E-R. It looks like golden fishing line and it must. Oh yeah, I just Googled it. Grow, have you, yeah, okay. So it must grow from spores. It's not really even a plant. It. I don't even know what its classification is, but it attaches itself. It has no chlorophyll what to speak of. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a parasitic plant. Yes. I just saw someone talk about one of those and one of those naturalist TikToks I've been watching. Ah, <laughs> check that out. Yes. So there was daughter all over the place. You know, like I took a picture of it and I started doing all this research. Like, what the heck is this? I've never seen this. Is this real? Because <laughs> it doesn't look real. And it sucks the chlorophyll out of the host plant but it never actually turns green. It stays a golden color because it can't produce it and it can't sustain it. And it is parasitic. It's like some alien, you know, but that started growing everywhere. And so these fires going through really weaken the ecosystem. And at the same time, you know, there's seeds deep down in the ground that it exposes. And, you know, so then there's this growth and this renewal that does happen. But it's just really sad to see that especially trails that you know, really well that you've hiked through are so drastically changed after a fire. And so it's not just the ground that's getting burned. It's all of this. And, and and it is hard when you like Mount Wilson, right? So it was a station fire mm-hmm. that took out a lot of that. And we went, it was really funny, because there were these inflorescences, these big giant spears of purple flowers sticking out everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I walked into the visitor center and I said, what are those purple? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) Because when you touch it, it would give you, you know, like a poison ivy, but like a hundred times worse. Um, And it was called the poodle flower. They called it the poodle flower. But it was it was a fire follower. And the only time that it would ever grow is after a fire. And it was part of the natural process. You know, yeah, we lost all these other things, but this is what would come up afterwards. And again, you have to think in these long periods of time to understand how this whole ecosystem works. You know, it's not just this tree and that bird and whatever. But when the heat and when you're intensifying these things because of climate change, you don't have that recovery process anymore. 
So yeah, it's hard when it's just like, oh, all those trees are gone, but look at these cool purple flowers. Well, next couple of fires, those purple flowers aren't going to come back because the fires burn so much hotter. Right. But you know, one of the, one of the most interesting things I've ever done was there's a citizen science page on the Natural History Museum. And I'm sure you saw my mm-hmm. post on Facebook where you go and you do surveys for an entire year. I would go over to the Marine Exchange to the area around that, Angel's Gate, and just this one little plot of land, I would go out and I would do a survey who's living, you know, what lizards and butterflies. And, and every month you go and you use your iNaturalist app and you record the creatures and plants that you see there for this project because they really wanted to understand, you know, what was living in Los Angeles. That's why they would do these projects, right? So a couple hundred people would be out once a month, go out and do a survey someplace. And one time I went and there were all of these weeds and I can't remember the name of the plant, but they were covered with painted lady caterpillars. And I just was like, oh, I can't wait till next month to come see what happened. Well, the city people came in and just mowed everything down. Oh God. No. So all of it, all of it was decimated. All of it was gone. And I understand it was a fire hazard. Marine Exchange obviously is a very important building for the entire port of Los Angeles. But oh, I just was, I was heartbroken. That hits you in the stomach. I was like, I hope they had a chance to pupate. But at least that's not a species that's endangered. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. 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 They're fluttering all over the place. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've been a nature observer my whole life. I garden with my parents, blah, 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 blah. But to go and do these surveys, the, the intimacy that I developed with this little patch of land, I can't explain it. I mean, you have to go and do it mm-hmm. to just like, I understand this place in a way that you couldn't, uh, even someone that came in and spent the day observing wouldn't see. It just was really a really special, I, I recommend it for anyone to just go in your front yard at first Thursday of every month and do a catalog of what's living there. <laughs> for sure. I will put a link in the show notes. I'm glad you reminded me because I'll do it. It is a little bit of a commitment, but you're getting so much out of it, right? Absolutely. Definitely. Everybody should get INAT anyway. And there's very few people that don't go, what the heck is that thing? Mm-hmm. You know, take a picture, upload it to iNaturalist and hey, look, it's a, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. iNaturalist, I'll post a link to that as well. You can upload pictures of plants. I didn't mm-hmm. have it when I saw the daughter over at Schweitzer Falls. It sure would have been handy. I could have just taken a picture of it, uploaded it to iNaturalist and it would have come back with all this information. I mean, it's just, it's a fabulous app, but Mm -hmm. you can upload bugs to it, you know, anything that you're going to find out in nature. And it also gives you kind of like close relations to whatever it is that you're looking at. And it gives you information about where it's originally from, where it grows, what climates are best. And, you know, so you you see some plants somewhere and it's not available at the nursery, but you definitely want it in your garden. I do have to say, try to go for natives. But there's something that you absolutely love. You can take a picture of it, put it in iNaturalist, find out what it is and take the steps that you need to, to, you know, to get it that way. Uh, but you do learn a lot. And I think this program with the Natural History Museum and then apps like iNaturalist as well, they really foster curiosity, just 
piquing your curiosity about something can keep you entertained for hours and really in an educational way so that you are learning a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Like, well, how does that grow? Where does the water come from? What is fire season do? Or all of this weather phenomenon and just environmentally it's going to really be an eye-opener. So I love those programs and, and apps like that. Now, do you have Merlin? I don't. If you follow birds at all, you know the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is probably one of the premier resources for anybody that's mm-hmm. a birder. I follow them online. Yeah, they have an app called Merlin, and they just added sound identification. Oh, wow. So they have a really good, um, the ID part, which is, you know, how big was it? You know, where are you at? You know, was it in a tree? Was it on the ground? On these, and then they give you a list of potential candidates based on what you enter in. So it's really good for bird ID. But now they've added the sound one. And I was had the blessing of being up in Santa Barbara, their botanical garden. And I just sat on one of the benches and turned on the sound ID. It's, it's picking, oh, that's a red-shouldered blackbird. And oh, that's a eight birds pop up. It, it was wonderful just to sit there. And and that's a beautiful place. It's just spectacular with their the different biomes that they have there too. Purposeful biomes that are going to attract different birds. Yeah, I, I try and go every time I go by there. It uh, definitely makes hiking, especially when you've been hiking all your life. And it's just like, oh, let's add a little bit more interest to the whole process. Yeah, it immerses you a little bit more. My favorite bird song is the house sparrow. Correction, I don't know why I said sparrow. My favorite bird sound is the house finch. They're so charming and they just always sound so cheery. I can just, you know, I think those are probably the birds that came down from the branches to land on Sleeping Beauty. I don't know. One of those princesses was able to charm birds down from the trees. And you hear this bird song in that cartoon every time. Yeah, uh, mine is the uh, the lesser goldfinches. It's kind of melancholic. Maybe I'm just thinking about it because I have a male that's been working the room. Out in my trees for the past couple of days. Ladies, ladies, <laughs> listen to my beautiful song. That's pretty, pretty funny. I got a nice piece of real estate right here just for you. <laughs> that is really cute. Um, I definitely wanted to also talk about your jewelry making. I mean, <laughs> I'm so fascinated by that because it's very intricate. It's really beautiful. It's super precise. And I see so much of your mathematical and engineering knowledge. Your environmental interests are also being brought together in the jewelry. And they're such unique and beautiful pieces that I wanted to talk about how you got into that and just the whole process that you go through to create some of these. Well, you know, both my parents were creative um, and my father would buy old instruments, like 10 bucks for an old banjo, and he would repair it, like redo all the inlays. I would have especially banjos, which he never played, which is funny because he played guitar, he played fiddle. He was a very accomplished musician. And my mom had, she also did not finish her degree. Back in their day, you didn't need, you know, you could just kind of teach yourself stuff. My father-in-law was the same thing. Had multiple homes, you know, worked in the stock market, but worked his way up without ever having finished college. (laughs) 
isn't that an interesting contrast between then and now and the freedoms that you had in your career without a degree that are not available at this time? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think we ever finished talking about how people are using data to measure you when the data is not necessarily complete. They don't look outside that piece of paper, you know, it's just like, okay, what are your certificates? They don't look at things that are a little bit less well-defined. Yeah. I mean, just going back again to Brooke, she has a degree from Cal State Northridge. She had years and years and years of experience in the museum industry, all of this knowledge curated. And it's really crazy because she's telling me this story and I'm like, hers is not the only story that I've heard like this, sadly. She thought, you know, with all of this museum experience, like the Smithsonian will take me or one of the other museums over there. There must be like a Metropolitan Museum. Or, you know, there's so many different landmarks and they all have museums. So she thought that she could get a job there. And it was so status oriented that when they'd never heard of Cal State Northridge, they hadn't even heard of the, she worked at the La Brea Tar Pits, but she couldn't get a job in the museum industry for five years that she was in DC. And she finally came back six months later, she had director of education position at a really big deal museum. And that's exactly what she's doing at another big deal place, the Los Angeles Arboretum. And it was all because she didn't have the data set. She didn't fit that perfect little box. Well, you know, this is another place where companies in particular don't want to invest, and that's people management. You know, they say people are managers, but most of the people I know when they talk about their boss, they're project managers. They're making sure the work gets done, but they're not managing people. They're not assessing their skill sets and what do they need to learn, make sure they take that class or that they develop this skill set or whatever. I should add that, you know, for 15 years, I was in consulting. I worked for a consulting company and we would go in and we would do business analysis of your industry. Uh, For instance, um, one of the really cool, it was an app that tracked gas going through pipelines, natural gas. And so we had to assess what the whole business model of having to calculate huge, enormous volumes of gas and knowing all the different parts of a business and what it takes to get you there to the software that's going to support all of that. You know, and time and time again, I would see, you know, you're not developing your human resources. You know, there's nobody managing these people. That's overhead. Spending the time to do employee reviews or, you know, looking through their paperwork and seeing that they need this skill or, you know, there's all stuff that isn't billable. It doesn't have a direct economic value to it that's very measurable. So people don't invest in it. And that's why it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to run your resume through this piece of software and it's going to spit you out or not spit you out, you know. So anyway, it's another place that my observation is people don't spend enough time and energy on because they think it's too expensive. And it just goes back to your redundancy in data. (laughs) Because the time is not put in there that it deserves. And it really could optimize so many parts of the entire process of running a business, if that extra effort was put in there. And I know, like, you you know, you keep mentioning it is an extra expenditure. So that's really how I should frame it. But it is incredibly important, but it keeps getting minimized. Well, I think we're, you know, you see this on Wall Street, where it's just like, well, we need to have our numbers up for this quarter. So the things that have long term benefit seem to be shortchanged 
more and more these days as we try and again this this advancement like oh we got to cash in now you know everybody's like you, you were talking about running the race or whatever mm-hmm. it's like well that might help in four years or three years or whatever but our shareholders need this information right now right it almost seems like there needs to be a two branches for every company the instantaneous results branch and the one that is doing the long-term longevity projects in the background that is going to ensure the longevity and the success of that company at a slower pace while in the forefront there's all of this stuff that's getting done like lickety split there's there's the expense right there there's the expense and the time and the energy yeah so (laughs) maybe it's good I like to Mm -hmm. kind of gather all my thoughts about stuff. Uh, Maybe it's just me. (laughs) I think that's an excellent trait. You know, I think that the older I get, the more I realize that I don't have to have knee jerk reactions to everything that I don't need to respond immediately to every text and every email that comes my way. I can stop and think about it again, to economize on one redundancy and two responses that either make things worse or are just plain old non-productive. So, you know, it's okay to think things through. Yeah, I think that we all need to be validated in our response styles, who we are, you know, those are all things of who we are, because a lot of times I think, I wish I could have thought of that. This is one of the reasons why I love talking to people. Everybody has a different perspective. And so many times I'll say, oh, blah, 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 because, you know, it's totally obvious to me. And then the person I'm talking to throws in something that's so brilliant. And I didn't see that. I did not see that. It's like, whoa, you know, like that is amazing. And so I love that, that, you know, your perspective can be widened through these various communication styles. But, you know, it's the same thing with me, where I wish that my ability to be extemporaneous on so many conversations was quicker, was, you know, just like on the cutting edge. But on the flip side, you take a look at some of the people who are just quickly responding to things. And like you said, they are either just on the surface sometimes, or there's a lot of error in that, or there's a lot of presumption in it that doesn't take into account other things. So um, I think we balance each other out. I think that the, the fast thinkers and the slower thinkers, and that has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence quotients or emotional intelligence or anything like that. It just has to do with processing speed and what each person is individually comfortable with. Because, you know, somebody who's producing answers really fast might not be seeing the whole picture. And somebody who's processing things a little bit more fully, more extensively, um, really delving deeper is going to to eventually see a bigger picture and somewhere in the middle, there's a balance. And I think that, you know, there's definitely 
space for both of those. Well, and the perfect example of that was back in my consulting days. Occasionally, I would go out with the salespeople. And of course, the salespeople are the, the slick talkers, <laughs> uh, right? And they would bring, you know, the tech guy along with them. And I was always the tech guy. And they'd be, oh, yeah, we could do this, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the sales guys, like, they would be the dreamers, right? Like, oh, yeah, we could do this, we could do that, and blah, 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 blah. And I, well, I'm sitting in the corner going, no, 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 you can't do that. That's going to cost you. You're going to need 70 programmers and whatever. And the reason we were teamed up was because we wanted that balance. But you have to know that you need, you have to know that the balance is needed because I think there's certain things that are happening in politics lately where the fast talkers don't necessarily have the best solutions, but they're the ones getting the ear of the people and there's not that balance, you know, so. Right. The slower ones are already passed up in the race, you know, like they find themselves finally reaching the finish line and the race is done. Like everybody's off onto the next one and the cameras have moved on with them. Right. The people that need to hear the messaging of both are only listening to the louder one. You know, yeah. because they, you know, they want to get to dinner, they want to go get, they got to get to work, or they got to, oh, they sometimes it gets entertainment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they don't Exactly, want- exactly. It's like, where's the popcorn? Uh, yeah. And, and sometimes that's good. But then, like with climate change, it takes too long to sit and conceptualize broader subjects, you know? So. And the concepts are so complex too, because it, everything's interrelated. And, you know, you start talking about one thing. It's like a conversation. You start talking about one thing and that leads to the next thing and that leads to something. And before you're looking at it, you're like, okay, well, how do I fix this? Uh, Well, you know that I was telling you about how we had the tech guy and the sales guy go together. And of course, I would go back and in producing the bid, I would go through, well, this will probably take about 60 programming hours. You're going to need to buy this equipment. It's going to cost them this and that. And we'll have to get this software and blah, blah, blah. And I would put this all together. And I, it's a $50,000 project, let's just say, which is a pretty small number mm-hmm. for a software development project. But, uh, and then they, of course, they'd hack it. They go, oh, no, 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 we want a competitive bid. So we, okay, 45, right? So in the long run, oh, no, you don't need that many programming hours. Time after time, they did not learn how spot on my estimates were. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when all is said and done, we win the contract. And then, oh, oops, we went over by exactly $5,000. I told you it was going to cost us. It's kind of like when you look at your navigation system, you're going somewhere and it says, estimated arrival time for 12. And I'll be like, "Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to get there at least 15 minutes ahead of that. So, you know, it won't even be four o'clock when I get there. And every single time I am there, no matter what I do, I get there at the time that Waze told me. And, you know, I could just see the voice told you so. (laughs) And that's what happens with these contracts. Everybody's trying to beat it. You know, I I really don't know any driver who has told me, oh, no, you know, like, I don't think that most people, especially here in LA, we're just trying to get everywhere as quickly as possible. Despite the amount of traffic, we think that we can do it better. And every single time the navigation system is right, every single time the consultant is right. It's, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll arrive by 6.30. I'm like, challenge accepted. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's what these salespeople are thinking, you know, oh, it's going to cost us. So really the trick is to pad that figure and say, you know what, yes. this is going to cost $70,000. Yeah. So you over deliver 
but then everybody's going to be like, told you so. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, Laura doesn't know what she's talking about. See, we, we saved the $20,000. Uh, well, so, I don't know. There's, there's no happy medium. <laughs> no, I used to go into my boss and I go, this is my estimate. Tell the sales guy this. <laughs> so I would do that, you know, cause my pride wouldn't let me go. Oh, I'll be wrong. Right. But I'm like, I'm going to tell you it's going to cost this, but you tell the sales guy it's going to cost this. Because they're going to undercut me and no matter what I do. So that's job security. Ensure that your boss knows you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's funny. There's so much to think about. Everything that we do comes back to the environment. Small changes add up to big ones. So start by cleaning out your email box, planting milkweed, or joining a citizens project with a nature organization. Laura's jewelry can be found online at Etsy, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Three Pine Hill. That's the number three spelled out, T-H-R-E-E. As always, I'll post links about everything that we talked about in the show notes. Please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more in the company of friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, creativity, discovery, elegance, and beauty. Sounds cool. I might just, I'm one of these, I won't keep threatening my husband. I'm going to buy an RV. You're not going to see me again. <laughs>